you'll open your Bible to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. It's where we take the morning's message from. Matthew chapter 13. And zero in your attention on verses 31 through 33. That song we just sung together, heard sung so wonderfully, uh, reflects the reality that all Christians have been bought with a price. We're not our own. We've been redeemed. We've been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. Uh, he owns us. And what we're saying when we give ourselves away is that we submit ourselves to Him fully to do whatever He chooses to do with us. For after all, we don't own ourselves any longer. He owns us. In fact, he owns us in a twice-full way. First of all, he owns us by creation. And then he owns us by redemption. And we glorify his name. Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 31, the text reads as follows. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the burst of birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them, that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. I'm using as a, as a subject for these verses a small seed, a little yeast. A small seed, a little yeast. These parables were necessary for Christ's disciples to hear. And they are necessary for us to hear as well. When Jesus taught these parables, the kingdom of heaven's prospects did not seem very bright. Many people, especially the religious leaders in Israel, at this point in our Lord's ministry had decided to reject him as Messiah. And in the parable of the sower, there's only a minority response to the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. The parable of the tares, or weeds, as we saw last week, did not help matters either. Jesus revealed in that story that there would be a mixture of the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one. So at this juncture in our Lord's ministry, the kingdom of heaven seemed insignificant. As one writer penned, it has been sown into the world with so little power, so it seems. End of quote. So during the inter-advent age, that is the time between Christ's first and second comings, the outlook of the kingdom was not very promising. Jesus, however, tells these parables, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, to encourage his disciples. He wanted them to understand that his kingdom would not only survive, but that it would thrive. These two parables illustrate the victory of the kingdom of heaven. They illustrate the victory of the kingdom of Christ. And we start, first of all, with a, um, the heading, The External Growth of the Kingdom. The External Growth of the Kingdom. In verse 31, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. 
The inaugural stage of the kingdom of heaven is small, hence the comparison to the mustard seed, a humble, meager start to the kingdom of heaven. What was a mustard seed? When Jesus said that everybody in audience understood what a mustard seed was. They're quite familiar with it. Jesus always used commonplace things to illustrate spiritual truth, things that people grasped and, and dealt with on a daily basis so they could comprehend the spiritual truths that he would delineate in the parable for those who had ears to hear or the explanation later. A mustard seed was, a, was black in color. A gospel account says a garden. It was done for its sharp, tangy spice from its grains and greens from its leaves. The text says here in before us, a mustard seed, a single mustard seed, not a handful of mustard seeds, but one seed. You get the point. <laughs> one solitary mustard seed. That's what Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. In verse 32, Jesus elaborates. He says, and this is smaller than all other seeds. This paints a picture for us about the kingdom. It tells us the kingdom has an inauspicious beginning. The kingdom doesn't look like much. I've said that, right? It looks very humble. It is very meager. A mustard seed. That is the comparison. The smallness and apparent insignificance of the kingdom is made by this comparison to the mustard seed and is quantified by a man named C.H. Hunziger. And from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, Hunziger says this, that it takes, get this, 750 mustard seeds to weigh one gram. A, a gram is equal to, I know you want to know, 0 0.0353 ounces. Uh, that doesn't weigh much. That conveys to us the insignificance of a mustard seed, the smallest of a mustard seed. Now, you need to understand this, that some have accused Jesus of being an error because he called the mustard seed there in verse 32 smaller than all other seeds. They claim that this proves that Jesus made a mistake. It also, in their thinking, said that Scripture, therefore, is not infallible, that Scripture is not inerrant, because if it were, then they would know there are some mustard seeds smaller than, uh, seeds smaller than the mustard seed. Well, may I say to you, the accusations themselves are in error. Jesus did not mean that the mustard seed was the smallest seed in existence. In fact, the wild orchid's smaller. In fact, botanists understand that there are smaller seeds. Jesus understood that there were smaller seeds elsewhere in the world because, after all, he's the one who created them. So, so it's not a problem of Jesus' knowledge. Jesus is omniscient. He knew what the smallest seed is because he created them. And in this one in particular, he created because he wanted to use it when he came here to illustrate his kingdom. Did you not know that? You see, the reason he used the mustard seed is because everybody in his audience knew what a mustard seed looked like. They knew that the mustard seed was the smallest seed in their experience. So he wouldn't talk about a seed over here in North America because none of them lived here. 
Amen. Say amen if you can. It's the smallest seed known to those living in Israel. So before you begin to uh, criticize Jesus thinking he doesn't know something, understand he's not a botanist. He created botany. He knows all of it. Moreover, we need to understand that the language here that is used was proverbial for anything small. We see this proverbial usage in Matthew chapter 17, 20. We're all familiar with it, but I would just want to read it to remind you of it. Jesus was instructing his disciples, and he says in verse 20 of Matthew 17, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a what? You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. You get it? They all understood that a mustard seed was small, and they understood that when Jesus used that, what he was communicating to them because of the commonality of their experience. Smallness. Jesus said the same thing in Luke chapter 17, verse 6. You can write it down and look at it later. Also, rabbinical sources often use mustard seed to describe something of minute size. So this was quite common in Israel. It's quite common in the life of the Jews. The point that Jesus is making is that the mustard seed and its ultimately great size or growth was proverbial for the growth of the kingdom. In fact, it would be out of proportion to its original size, the kingdom. That's why he mentions the smallness. It indicates that the contrast of the small beginning would be disproportionately large at his end. This is the emphasis of the parable. This is what Jesus wants to convey. He is telling his men, men, don't worry. Saints, don't worry. My kingdom looks small right now. It doesn't seem like much is happening, but you trust me. It's, when it's all said and done, it's going to be the biggest thing there is. The outcome of the kingdom of heaven will be greatly different from the way it was in Jesus' day. He said, just give it time. I'm working. In fact, our Lord's language here is emphatic in verse 32. And I'll explain what I mean by this. It says, and this smaller than all other seeds. But when it's full grown, I notice this. It is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. The placement of the words larger than the garden plants before the word becomes is for emphasis. Jesus is emphatic as to what's going to happen here. When Jesus says anything, you want to pay attention. You want to perk up your ear. Pay attention to what he's saying. Jesus is emphatic about the ultimate outcome of the kingdom. He says it's coming. It's going to be large. You'll notice something there in our text. It says it becomes a tree. It's compared to that. Mustard seed plants grow uh, in height to between 10 and 15 feet. And I thought about how I could help us visualize that. 
most of us in here know something about hoops, basketball. Basketball goes um, 10 feet. And some of you probably sitting in here can dunk. But think about it. A mustard seed plant that would grow to 15 feet. Just went beyond your ability, didn't I? <laughs> Not even LeBron James can dunk 15 feet goal, right? In one Jewish source, a mustard seed is said to be large enough for a man to climb as one would climb a fig tree. Think about this from that minute beginning to the larger, as large as a fig tree. Well, what is represented by the tree? We need to understand that because Jesus used this and there's a reason for using a, a tree here to illustrate the outcome of the kingdom. He just didn't pick this out of the air. The Bible coheres. There, there, there are things that are stated in the Bible earlier and then they're used later on, and Jesus is doing that here. Let's understand, in the Old Testament, trees are imagery for great kingdoms of the world. They're wide impact. We see this in the book of Daniel, and I would invite you to join me in the book of Daniel as in the Old Testament. If you'll go there with me, if you can't find it, don't worry. Just listen, and I'll uh, share with you what I would like for you to hear. Or you can look in the table of contents and you can find the pages on and you can turn there as well if you want to lay your own eyes on it. Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. I'm going to take a couple of places here in this book of Daniel to uh, explain here the idea about trees as an imagery for great kingdoms of the world that will dominate the world. Daniel chapter 4 is the place I ask you to look first. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar one night lay awake and he had a vision. It says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 10, Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a, here's the next phrase, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to stop here at this point. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had no idea what this vision meant. Nothing. Daniel would have to interpret it for him. And we can see uh, the, uh, Daniel, uh, the interpretation of the vision from Daniel chapter 4 verse 20. He is relaying to Nebuchadnezzar the meaning. Verse 20. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful as fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which the beast of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion is to the end of the earth. Get that? Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, he has worldwide dominion, and is pictured as a tree in this vision that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar and only Daniel could interpret it because Daniel was the interpreter God had there to explain it to him. Now, 
you, you may wonder, uh, how do I know that's a kingdom? I'm glad you asked. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 37, we can see it here. This is another dream, the first dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And we see the interpretation in what I'm about to read you. Verse 36 of Daniel chapter 2. This was the dream. Nebuchadnezzar had the dream, forgot the dream, didn't know what the dream was, so, so Daniel had to tell him what the dream was, then had to interpret it for him. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. Verse 37, You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the strength and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So what this is saying, Nebuchadnezzar, God has raised you up and you are the head of the mightiest empire, the mightiest kingdom in the world. You have worldwide dominance. The imagery then is telling us that trees, as we read in Daniel 4, represents kingdoms. Now, you know, let me read something here for you. Jesus said in this passage that we're looking at this morning in Matthew 13, verse 31, the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Mm. I read that to you. Jesus said those words. Jesus may have had in mind this particular passage I'm going to ask you to turn to. If you will, look with me at Ezekiel chapter 17. Ezekiel chapter 17. We will see then how we can understand more fully what our Lord Jesus Christ is teaching us about his kingdom, which starts off the size of a mustard seed in comparative language. Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 22. Have you found that place? Oh, boy, y'all are good. Ezekiel, we back there somewhere. Okay, we found him. <laughs> Here he is. Ezekiel 17, verse 22. Now, let me, let me kind of give you a little background here. What's happened? Um, Israel, as Judah, has been deported at this junction. Some were looking to first Babylon, then they were looking to Egypt to provide security for them. God says, that's not going to happen. Neither one of them is going to be your security. They should have been looking to Yahweh. But they're, they're in exile, they're in Babylonian captivity, but God has a plan for his people Israel. It, this plan goes beyond the return to the land, but it goes all the way to the future. In Ezekiel chapter 17, this is what the Lord God says. Thus says the Lord God, I will also take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I will pluck from the topmost of the young twigs a tender one, and I will plant it on a high and holy mountain. Let, let's stop here for a moment and talk about what we've just read. These words here that I read in your hearing are a messianic prophecy about Messiah's kingdom to come. Yahweh, you'll notice he speaks in the first person. Notice verse 22. I will also take a sprig. Now, do understand Yahweh is not talking about literal sprigs. He's not talking about a literal cedar. He's not giving a horticultural lesson. He's not talking about that at all. These are symbols. 
symbolic of literal reality. Further, let me go on here to verse 23. On the mountain of Israel I will plant it, notice, that it may bring forth bows and bear fruit and become a stately cedar. And birds of every kind will nest under it. They will nest in the shade of its branches. You hear that language? Does that not sound familiar? Let me attempt to explain what is being said here in these symbolic terms. You had me, I read a moment ago about a sprig, right? It represents the Davidic dynasty. The kingdom that God promised David that would be ultimately fulfilled in his greater son, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, check that out sometime, God promised David a kingdom, an eternal kingdom, and a a descendant from his own loins who would sit on the throne, then subsequently a descendant would be on the throne who would be a ruler forever and ever. That's none other than Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this is talking about. That sprig from which Messiah will come, that's what is meant here. A tender twig. I read that a moment ago. A tender twig. A messianic descendant. That's the imagery that's in the Old Testament. It is used for Messiah. For example, uh, this horticultural uh, identification, uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. He is referred to as a branch. He is also referred to, that is Messiah, of course we know Messiah is Jesus Christ in Jeremiah 23 verse 5, as a righteous branch. Do you get the language? Zechariah 3 verse 8 calls him a branch. In Isaiah 53 verse 2, which is, uh, is a part of a passage that really talks about Christ as coming as sacrifice on the cross for sinners, the Old Testament gospel actually. He is designated or compared to a tender shoot. In Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 23, here that I've read about, read to you, this, there's a reference to mountain there. Often in scriptures, mountains denote governmental authorities. So what this is telling us, that in Jesus will rule. He will, the government will be up on his shoulders. Remember that in Christmas? In December, when you get a Christmas card, you hear that, understand, that's what he's talking about. Government shall be up on his shoulders. He's going to rule. Messiah will rule in his millennial kingdom from Mount Zion. It's the mountain here. Mount Zion in Jerusalem. He'll rule for evermore. Now, his kingdom, notice, and birds of every kind will nest. Under Messiah's rule, all nations will be blessed and Israel will be restored. How do we know it's going to happen? Number one, because God said so. Number two, because whatever God says he's going to do, God can do and nobody can stop him, right? Look at the bottom of verse 24, just to underscore this in our thinking. Notice what it says, I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will perform it. Amen. When God says he's going to do something, he can pull it off. Nobody can stay his hand. Now, this kingdom is coming. That's what Jesus is saying. 
It's coming, and I'm going to tell you it's coming. In Revelation, I'm going to ask you to look there because you need to see it. I could just say it, but some of you are not that familiar with this, and I want you to have it in your own reading. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. I, I want you to see the kingdom is coming. By the way, while you're turning, may I say this to you? You cannot read the Old Testament without running across the reality that God intends to send his son back to this planet and set him on a throne where he's going to rule over this entire planet. You can't get through the New Te Old Testament without seeing that. It's all over the place. One, some time ago, I was sitting as I was reading, I just started marking these texts and started writing them down. I said, look at this. Every time you turn around, he's talking about this coming kingdom. And it's going to come. Revelation 11, verse 15. Trumpet judgment is going to be sounded during the tribulation period. And saying, notice, there's in heaven saying this, the kingdom of the world has come, the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. It's coming. There's a point in the future during the tribulation period when that seventh trumpet is sounded and the people in heaven and the angels and everybody else can say, oh, uh, the, the kingdom has now come. Let me take this apart for a moment and explain something to you. The kingdom of the world. Notice it doesn't say the kingdoms of the world. The kingdoms of the world. Singular. The kingdom of the world. Let me tell you all something. People don't get this. All the political divisions, all the kingdoms, potentates, presidents, whatever, in God's view, is all one kingdom of the world. Do you hear what I'm saying? That includes the United States. Don't be fooled. In God's view, the United States, China, Russia, all the rest of them is just one kingdom headed by one God, Satan, that's in opposition to him. You don't understand that you don't really get it. Yes. Keep that in mind. That's what God says about it. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, our Messiah. He's going to come, and in Daniel, it talks, he's called the, the stone cut out without hands. He's going to wipe them all away. He alone will be the sovereign here on earth. And he will reign for how long? That sounds like forever to me, doesn't it? No end to it. <laughs> That's what we have to look forward to. The people of God. So do understand, God's going to deal with evil. He's going to put all this stuff down. Christ's kingdom is going to rule. So don't fear. It's going to happen. So we can take comfort in that. The external growth of the kingdom is obvious. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. It is happening. It has happened and will be fulfilled. Next thing, go back, if you will, to Matthew chapter 13. And we pick up verse 33. The, that heading for that parable is the internal influence of the kingdom. The internal influence of the kingdom. The parable of the mustard seed tells us that the kingdom will survive and thrive and it will expand mean that the kingdom will have worldwide dominance as Christ rules over everything. The parable of the leaven tells us how the kingdom will thrive. It's profound and powerful influence. 
The kingdom is like leaven, it says in verse 33. Leaven, or yeast, was a common and necessary ingredient in the homes of Palestine. Let me explain this. I know you all are microwave people, but I'll tell you a little bit. (laughs) It was a piece of the week's fermented dough saved over to help the current week's dough to rise. It was the leavening agent. The fermentation process can be started by letting a little water and barley ferment or by mixing bran and wine. Leaven, or yeast, was placed in, or hidden in three pecks of flour with all the leaven in our parable. Now, I need to explain something to you about leaven and how it was used in the Scripture. Uh, it represents, in some instances, evil. But it also can represent good or positive influence. A symbol, then, can have either a, a positive or a negative meaning. So what we have to hear, I want to explain something to you, because I'm going to tell you this is not evil here. This is positive. Some think it's an evil influence uh, yeast here, but it's not. It is a positive one. But to explain how a symbol can have two different meanings, you need to grasp this uh, hermeneutical or biblical interpretation principle. It must be borne in mind, this fact. I'm going to tell you what it is here. Here's an example how a symbol can be used to depict different things. In 1 Peter 5, 8, there's the word lion. It symbolizes the devil in his adversarial role. And it says there, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Uh, the term lion is also used for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49, 8 through 10, and Revelation chapter 5, 5. The lion of the tribe of Judah is a messianic term for Jesus and speaks of his fierceness and strength, which is unveiled in the book of Revelation as he judges his enemies, as he judges sinful men upon this planet. During the tribulation period, the lion of the tribe of Judah will unleash judgment on this planet, and he will judge sinners. They will recognize his wrath. They'll recognize his fierceness. They'll recognize his strength because they refused him. They rejected him. They persist in their sin. And the lion of the tribe of Judah would judge, but also the lion of the tribe of Judah is going to return. He's going to deliver his people, Israel. He's going to deliver his people who are saved during the tribulation period. People who embrace him as their Lord and Savior, he'll deliver them too. Evil symbolism of leaven can be used for Christians, about Christians rather, to instruct us how we're to live our lives and what we're to watch out for. Let's explore that briefly. First Corinthians chapter uh, 5. Paul is writing to uh, the church at Corinth, obviously, and the Apostle Paul is... Um, telling the church that they, they, they let a man who was exp- involved in immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles. Someone has his father's wife. That's highly repugnant. And they had become arrogant and had not mourned over this sin. They hadn't done anything about this sin. He rebuked them for it. And 
And he said here in verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? That's the, the reality. He also says here for Christians, you don't want to have, uh, you know, church can be corrupted by a single individual sins. And he says, for Christians, you don't want that in your life. Verse 8, it says, therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Malice and wickedness ought to not ever be characteristic of any child of God. Get that out of your life. Right? Sin is to be there. Jesus also teaches the Christians what to watch out for in terms of evil influence. In Matthew chapter 16, in verse 6, he says to them, his disciples, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 11, Jesus, because they were thinking he was talking about bread, that literal bread, and he, had this, he said to them, how is it, verse 11, that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The leaven of the Pharisees included doctrinal errors, personal hypocrisy. Be aware of that. You don't want that in your life. Be mindful of people like that. Don't let them influence you. Stay away from people who will influence you for evil. Never want that in your life. Now, leaven is used for positive, in a positive manner here in our parable back there in verse 33. Uh, this is what is intended by our Lord's parable here. The positive influence of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. You'll notice in verse 33, it says, A woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Three pecks of flour. One commentator says three pecks would be enough to feed 150 people. He humorously adds concerning the size of the meal being prepared these words. Listen to this. This is no slip of a girl making two tiny loaves for her husband's pleasure. This is a baker, folks. Three measures is a bushel of flour. That's 128 cups. That's 16 pound bags when you get done putting in the 42 or so cups of water you need to make it come together. You've got over 101 pounds of dough on your hands. It's quite a bit. And Jesus says, take a little leaven, a little yeast, my kingdom, and put in all of that and guess what? It's going to affect the whole thing. Let me state it again. The leavening process is analogous to the kingdom of heaven in that a small amount of yeast affects the whole batch of dough. It's hid. The text says hid in three pecks of meal. Not that you can't see it. It's 
necessarily. That's not Jesus' point. He's saying that it penetrates deeply into the dough. And what's going on in the world, even now, is that the gospel is penetrating deeply in the life of the world. You can't see it all. But the gospel is advancing. God's kingdom is bringing people in. People are coming to Christ all over the world, but it's never going to make the news. You'll never be sitting watching television and there'll be the banner that says, Breaking News. The kingdom of heaven just brought in some more saints. It ain't going to happen. But it is happening. Extend through the whole world. So leaven illustrates the power of the kingdom to overcome resistance and opposition. Jesus is telling them, he is telling us, do not fear, my kingdom is working, my power is behind it, the gospel is powerful, it will save, it is saving, you're in the world, you're Christians, and God is using you. Let me put it like this. It extends throughout the whole world, and it comes through the king, the Lord Jesus, through his word and his faithful people. His kingdom is advancing. You needn't fear. We know already because we saw it a moment ago in Revelation 11 and we read the end of the story because we read the last book of the Bible and we know we're going to win, right? The victory is assured. This is God's kingdom. This is God's work. I don't care what men do. Men, men come and go, don't they? May I just divert? Say, I remember when I was growing up, I remember this guy named Nikita Khrushchev. He seemed so powerful because he had nuclear weapons. He was in Russia, and our president, John Kennedy, they had this thing back in 1962. And guess what? You know where both those guys are? They come and go. God lets them stay on uh, throne a little while. And sit. Remember we read about Nebuchadnezzar a moment ago? Because of his arrogance and pride, God said, guess what? For seven years, you're going to act like an animal until you realize that I run things. And when you come to your senses, then I'm going to restore your kingdom. And until then, go out there and eat some grass, dude. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. God's running this thing. Go to bed at night and sleep. Oh, I just love talking about this. I love the fact that God runs things, don't you? Let me uh, offer some closing remarks from Mark Bailey. He offers some practical applications of this parable. First, believers should depend on what God is doing through His Spirit in the present age. Second, Christians should be suspicious of any man-made, externally influenced institutional structures that say they are manifestations of the kingdom of God. Why should we be suspicious? Because they're not. Third, believers must be cautious about setting dates and presuming the arrival of the kingdom since the parable gives no hint as to when the permeation ends. That's a good point, isn't it? We don't know when the permeation is over. Only God knows that. Only Jesus knows that. And when it's done, he'll come. Don't you worry. You just do your job. Serve him. Fourth, 
Jesus' followers can be confident that regardless of any current perspectives, the kingdom of God has a glorious future. Amen and amen. How does one get into the kingdom of heaven? How does one become a follower of Jesus Christ, the King, Lord, and Savior? Repent and believe the gospel. Christ died as a substitute for sinners. He was raised from the dead triumphantly on the third day with all power in heaven and earth in his hands. And he is the one who can give eternal life to all repentant people who will say, Yes, Lord, I look to you. You're the only Savior, the only sovereign, the only substitute. You took care of sins on the cross, and I come humbly to you. I deny myself, take up my cross, and I will follow you because you're Lord. When you do that, guess what? You're in the kingdom. You're on the winning side. You just got off the losing side onto the winning side. That's what you want to do. If you want to follow Christ, I encourage you to do that. If you want to be in the kingdom, I encourage you to do that. And today is the day to do that. You need to do it now because you don't know if you have tomorrow. In fact, you don't know you have this afternoon. When I was growing up, people used to say, well, you better do it today because you don't know you don't have tomorrow. Well, frankly, then they would start saying, well, you don't even know if you have the rest of the day. Come to Jesus while you can. Come into his kingdom. Be a part of what he is doing, which will last forever and ever and ever and ever. Uh, let's bow together in prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the fact that uh, you are in charge of history. Jesus' kingdom will rule one day in your own time we'll see and rejoice he will rule from sea to sea until the moon will be no more oh how we give you praise and glory for the reality of what your plan is for this creation of yours I pray for those in this room who are saved that we will rejoice in the reality that you are working out your kingdom and it will come to the fruition that you have predetermined because you are the Lord. Help us to rejoice in it. Help us to serve you faithfully because of it. And I pray for those here in this room who are without Christ, that they may come to him, serve him as their Lord and Master, with gratitude for what he will do for those who repent of their sin and embrace him as Savior and Lord. We pray you do these things for your own namesake, for your glory, and for their eternal well-being. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.